All right. Hello. Welcome back to Noise Avocation Podcast. I'm Ryan here with Jeremy. Hello. We plan to talk about the replacements today. We have a shitload of information, so it's been kind of hard for us to narrow down what to drop in the podcast, what to touch base on, what we can leave out, because there's just so much that makes up this band and so much craziness and shit throughout their career. So please give us a break. (laughs) So yeah, if some of this seems kind of, I don't know, just bounces around, we might have remembered something that we wanted to drop in there or whatever that was relevant. Bear with us. Yeah. So anyways, The Replacements were a band out of Minnesota. They started in the late 70s. I think they lasted until about around 1991. They released nine studio albums. Five had the original lineup. The four that followed had a few remaining members, but we'll get into that later. And then Paul, the singer, had released six solo albums following the departure of The Replacements. I think it was important for us to start off with how these guys came to be just as people in general not as a band the way they were brought up the way their lives sort of took shape kind of seemed like they were destined to fail from the get-go or born to lose sort of thing the band consists of paul westerberg bob stinson tommy stinson and chris mars bob and tommy being brothers tommy being the youngest Bob, Tommy, and Chris started the band out as a trio originally. Uh, The trio was called Dog Breath, and Tommy was around 11 when Bob started giving him a bass. When they first started out, they were covering songs by Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, and Yes. They didn't have a singer, so they put an ad out, and they were looking for a singer. They got a singer, and one day Paul Westerberg was walking by after work, and he used to work for the uh, a U.S. senator by the name of David Durenberger, I believe. So he'd walk home from work, and he'd hear this band. That, you know, he'd walk right by the Stinsons every day. So he got to know who the singer was and told this guy that the band doesn't like you and your lyrics suck, you need to leave. They, they don't want you around. And then took his spot. And that's how we got to the replacements as well we actually know. when they brought on oh Paul, i missed a little part yep. they changed their name to the impendments that's right and as they were playing shows early on in their career which the beginning of their music was very fast very punky very ramones influenced a lot of songs started with that famous one two three four and then going into fast you know easy punk beats so in the early stages of their career that's how it was. Their songs often lasted 40 seconds. They you know, didn't have that polished stage presence that a lot of bands end up with. And nor did they I mean, at the really time, they didn't really know how to play their instruments at yeah, that point. Yeah. You, I mean, you have a 13 or what, 13 year old at the time playing Not, bass on your record? Well, he was 11 becoming 12 and then i think when they released their first album he was 13 yeah i mean can you imagine 11 years old playing in a rock band with your older brother like and you expect that to sound like awesome (laughs) you know (laughs) and at the time bob was the only member who had actually really practiced anything right paul was listening to a lot of the faces and the rolling stones and chuck berry eddie cochran a lot of you know, stuff like that. 
I don't think that he was playing guitar really at the time or even really songwriting. He just knew, he worked as a janitor and knew that he needed to do something else because he was either bound to be in jail or a janitor. Or, yeah, that's a shitty choice. Or both, you know, you could be a janitor in jail too. So Bob was the only one who was really practicing anything at this point. And then you know, they start off their first shows very rough. They didn't do well around their area for quite a while, actually, until probably their fifth album, really, is when they started to... I mean, Let It Be became successful down the road, but we'll get to that. Well, when they were known as Dog Breath and the Impendiments, they just get loaded without Tommy, because Tommy couldn't get into the clubs to play ever, so that was always an issue. They couldn't get him in. It's 21 and over at a bar, you know? So they one night in 1980... At a church hall gig, they were banned for disorderly behavior, and then they changed their name to The Replacements. So, like Ryan said, then it was just a bunch of working. They soon recorded a four-song demo in Chris Mars, the drummer's basement, and they handed it to a man by the name of Peter Jesperson. Jesperson. And they did that in May 1980. Jesperson was the manager of a very famous record store known as Orfolk in Minnesota. It was kind of like... Minnesota's version of Amoeba, if you're familiar with Amoeba in California. Just imagine a big record store. Yeah, yeah, big, big, giant record store. But he also had ties to Twin Tone Records, which is the label that started off the replacement's career. So he handed him the demo tape and didn't hear back from him for a while. And then eventually, frustrated, he came back to the record store to see if he had listened to the tape yet and the tape was playing in the store because Jesperson, at this point, had listened to it. He described it as Chuck Berry meets the Sex Pistols and said that it was the greatest thing that he'd heard in years. So he was trying to push it on all the people at the record store, but then when Paul heard it, he came in the store and left because he was nervous that he was going to make fun of him or that it sucked or whatever, and then went home and called, or he went home and got a call from Jesperson asking if he wanted to just make a single or a record and paul was like you mean this shit's actually worth (laughs) right and so then that's how their twin tone deal came about after jesperson had done some negotiating with his partners but the album was titled sorry ma forgot to take out the trash and it was During the dog breath days, Bob was always assigned with taking out his mom's trash. And there was also a New York Dolls song, Trash, that they all really liked at the time. So they decided to kind of combine the two and make that as their first debut. And it was, I think it was like 23 or 24 songs long. You know, like we said, the songs were very short. They were quick one minute songs that they plowed through. Well, another problem they ran into was after they did sign with Twin Tone, and they thought they had a whole album's worth of material. They went to record it at an 8-track home studio in Minneapolis, but they didn't have any clout at that time, and so nobody wanted them in there. So it took them a while, you know, to really get that out, about six months, and then the album didn't get released until August 81. Yeah, because their label was broke right they wanted to save on the publishing costs they waited until they had extra projects backed up to save on promo when they were sending out the album which the promotion i mean what did they sell six thousand copies initially something like that yeah. so didn't go very far yeah 
and they couldn't tour the album. They had very limited promo. There wasn't a whole lot going on for it. So outside of the cult following of people that were in the area, there wasn't really a whole lot of demand for the band at this point. And then they followed that album up with an album that originally wasn't actually supposed to be an album. I don't recall if it was just leftover songs from the first that they didn't use or how that came about. It was called Stink, and then I think subtitled Kids Don't Follow Plus Seven, which the plus seven signaled the extra seven tracks after Kids Don't Follow. Also Um, during that, Jesperson was convinced that there's a hit song on there, um, the kids don't follow. He thought that was a hit, and he pleaded with the Twin Tone owners to uh, get it out. And he's like, "I'll do anything." And he ended up the like the first round of them. He personally hand stamped every one. Yeah, because the record company wouldn't give him the advance to print all the jackets. Right. So if you look for original pressings of Stink, they will be hand-stamped, and they're all different, too, because some of them they stamped once, some of them it's got the stamp on there like a hundred times, some of them it's, you know, so they might have done a smiley, I don't know. I've never seen I've never. I've first. never held one either. Yeah. Um, I do know on Discogs that they're like $500-ish. Or three to five hundred, I think, is what they're listed at right now. Last time I checked. Yeah, if I pay five hundred dollars for an EP, I'm gonna be sleeping in my garage for the next month. <laughs> so after so that, they did open for the Damned around this time for that album. And then I know that Paul did some solo recordings because during that time, yeah, Jesperson thought that he had the ability as a songwriter to take on a solo career. But at that time, he was still pretty pretty green eh yeah he almost only had that one album out and then yep stink and he didn't want to turn his back on the replacements because he felt like if he was recording songs for himself at the time then he thought the rest of the band thought he would go on his own way and do whatever which i I don't blame him yeah i get that it was songs that he wrote that just didn't work for those projects uh, that they were putting out because a lot of the songs were slower, ballady, acoustic sounding songs, like which came later on right. solo albums. And they didn't think that it fit the sound at the time. A lot of times, Bob didn't want to do things because it wasn't rock and roll, is what I've yeah. read. Bob Stinson was, he is a, was a rocker at heart. Um, yeah, he didn't want to play any. <laughs> ballady type things just screaming guitars simple three chord riffs and a guitar solo i do really like fuck school on that song yeah the inner punk child in mm-hmm. me you know it's such a simple song that just says fuck my school pretty much over and over again but who has not said fuck my school <laughs> exactly. like ever um, so that's a really fun song, and I know there's Dope Smoking Moron is like a pothead diss, if I remember correctly, and I think I read this story one time. Yeah, it was in the Replacements book, but it was about the time of this album where Jesperson and Paul were hanging out, and Jesperson put in Otis Redding, and Paul was like, fuck, why don't you put in something white and talentless like i'll never be able to sing like that and he put he put in the test pressing of their stink album and started playing that awesome (laughs) but yeah it's a short quick album so i mean there's not a whole lot to break down or really say about it it's an ep it's 
it's fast, punky, it's fun. So then they follow that album with Hoot Nanny, which would have been their third album. And that came out in 1983. I think that album personally to me sounds like Nirvana. Yeah? Like before Nirvana, obviously 83 was before Nirvana, but I hear a lot of what Nirvana did later in their career in that album. It has like... With the riffs? Not just that. It has that grungy tone to it. And the under, you know, the sound sounds like Bleach. I, um, that's probably the album that I'm least familiar with simply because I, I don't have a copy of it. So I can't really say too much as far as to what I like and don't like on that particular album. I'm not going to lie and try to tell you I know something I don't <laughs> or I love something I don't even know what it is. Um, I've heard it though, you know, it sounds unfinished to me, but maybe that's the appeal. Like Ryan said, it's, it has that grungy sound. I, I just think it sounds... Well, I know it's not it produced was, like as well, I don't think. It was cut mostly as a live album. Oh, okay, that makes so, sense. And then they dubbed in guitar tracks and to, I think some vocals clean it on up. some stuff to try okay. to clean it up. But it, it is a slight change, though, on Hoot and Annie. Yeah, they do have a different sound to it. So when they recorded that, Bob was a major alcoholic and was always showing up drunk to practice and the rest of the band later on developed drinking problems but bob i would say was the one who originally had the problem and brought that to the band he was the oldest one in the band yeah so i know it was cut mostly as a live album and that they recorded it inside of a freezing cold warehouse i believe that was due to the band's budget or the record label's budget i know that paul stark the guy that was doing the recording they would fuck with them because they were pissed that they had to record in this right place which if you've ever been to minnesota i haven't but you know i live in michigan it's fucking cold here too i was there once <laughs> imagine recording in a warehouse in minnesota in the middle of winter with no heat with no heat so I do know that they recorded in a booth to where the sound engineer could not hear them, or could not see them, I'm sorry. And they would often switch instruments amongst themselves, like Tommy would jump on guitar, Paul would jump on drums, yeah. Bob would go on bass. They'd almost do a Chinese fire drill on the instruments. Yeah, they cut it as the first song in that album was all of the members all mixed up on different instruments, and the guy that was recording it didn't actually know that that happened. Because he couldn't see him. Because he couldn't see him. So he was like, oh, all right, well, let's. Uh, that sounds fine. Let's do another take. And they were like, nope, that's it. That's the first song. And then to stick it to him, they were like, well, we're putting that on the fucking album, which goes along with them self-sabotaging their career over and over and over again by doing shit like this that is... It's hilarious, but, but it's probably... The, it is the most the reoccurring world. problem in their, in this band. I know that around this time... Tommy was a sophomore in high school. Yeah, he dropped out. And he had to get his mom to sign off to him quitting school. And then the band's manager, Jesperson, took on Tommy as being his legal guardian so they could tour. On the uh, the next album, Let It Be, which came out in 84, was the big, I think, the biggest change in their sound up to this point. It was definitely the most well-polished. Right. Paul really came into his own with his lyrics. It did grab the attention of major labels, and um, there were several that had expressed interest in signing them, 
But again, their reputation, they're broke. Bob's still working as a janitor and a pizza chef somewhere. Like, Yeah, he was a line cook at some restaurant called Roses. Yeah. All the way up until their fifth album, too. Yeah, he, he refused to quit, and a lot of times he would go there versus showing up for practice. I wonder if, because I always was like, that's fucking weird. Why would you do that? Like, if you're in a band and you got a shitty job and you get any slight inclination that you're going to proceed with anything, I'd be out of that thing. Right well, I, I think that might have to do with the Midwestern work ethic, you know, or he was always afraid of not having couple of bucks to get to get loaded to get loaded yeah Yeah, that was kind of my thought also was maybe he wanted to be able to support his habit i mean at least he was responsible about it right (laughs) it's better than him going out and begging for it i mean yeah he was a functioning alcoholic for a while i guess let it be was um that's my favorite album front to back i love it yeah it's one of those albums that you can just put on really no matter the mood and there's kind of a song on there for whatever mood you're in right and it never really gets old it just it's number 15 on the rolling stones magazine list of 100 greatest albums number 15 yeah i knew it was on that list somewhere it's pretty high sure so before we kind of dive into the album i want to point out that let it be yes was brought on by the beatles let it be Paul and Tommy were in the van riding with Jesperson, their manager, and other people, and they were saying they weren't sure what they were going to call the next album. And then Paul jokingly said, whatever comes on the radio next, that's what we're calling the next album, which happened to be The Beatles' Let It Be. So their manager was like, you guys aren't going to do that. You can't do that. And they demanded that it be done just to prove to their manager that they were going to do it which I thought was hilarious. but At the time, you know, in 1984, though, when you released that and calling an album Let It Be, it was pretty ballsy. The biggest song on there, I Will Dare, was actually written at the time that he was writing Hootenanny, and he wrote it right after they finished recording Hootenanny. He called the manager and was like, I've just written the best song that I've ever written. Right. And which ended up being the biggest single off of that album i believe but still never made it really into the charts anywhere i mean it was a great song and it's one of those songs that has a cult following but it just never at the time made it anywhere right i have a a fun little tip on that song peter buck actually played the solo on that song because bob couldn't come up with anything and he was quoted as saying you play on this fucking thing and so that's what happened. So the solo in that song is actually Peter Buck from R.E.M., not Bob. R.E.M. was also a band in the immediate area that they were like the predecessors of the replacements. Like they were the band that went commercial and made radio play and went on to be right. successful, depending on how you define successful. Uh, I personally like the replacements more. Me too. I'm not really a big R.E.M. fan, but... They did have more hits. Their albums sold better, but... You know as well as I do, that doesn't mean the music is as good, right? Exactly. This was the first album they put a cover on, too, I believe. Yep, because the albums prior to that... Well, they did have Sorry Ma, 
had like that sketch out picture of them kind of Hootenanny was a ripoff of some old folk album where they just took all their names and pasted it over it. It looked like one of those KTEL records. That's oh, just the like cover a itself. Artist thing. Yeah. I, I'm, oh, I was talking you meant about a, cover a song, song cover, right? Oh, okay, my bad. Which was I thought you meant like they did a photo shoot for a cover or whatever. But okay, yeah. But yeah, go ahead. Black Diamond by uh, Kiss, which is again pretty odd considering this band is the complete opposite of kiss you know they, they're not trying to put on an electric fire show but i'll tell you that the song is 10 times better than the kiss version yep. and i will never listen to the kiss version again yeah I, I mean he brought totally different vibes to that song it is a great song i like it way more than the kiss version so androgynous i think we should kind of talk about okay. that with the joan jett thing yep. So Androgynous was a song about a gender-bending couple named Dick and Jane. I can't remember the lyric to the song. I remember Jane's got a chain, Dick's got a dress, Jane's got a chain or something like that. Yeah. It was basically about, you know, a cross-dressing couple. The guy was the girl, the girl was the guy. I believe, like Jeremy was telling me earlier before we started, that Joan Jett plays that song for, is it? For trans awareness or something? Yeah, basically, leave people alone. If people want to love each other, fuck it, let them love each other. And um, she's been playing that song, man, since 2000. And I want to say, don't, I'm not 100%. 2005 is what I want to say. And a Um, lot of people probably don't know that it's a replacements cover. No, unless they're music nerds. Probably not. Or unless they're already replacements fans. Correct. Thanks to Noise Avocation Podcast, now you do. (laughs) Now you know. But the song starts, here comes Dick, he's wearing a skirt. Here comes Jane, you know she's sporting a chain. Yeah, there you go, okay. Same hair revolution, same build evolution. Tomorrow, who's gonna fuss? I mean, it's a very good song. It ends, uh, and they love each other so, androgynous. Androgynous. Closer than we know, love each other so androgynous it's a very uplifting song i mean i can understand why they or joan covers it and dedicates it to people i think paul wrote it only because he found the definition of androgynous which i should have looked up what the definition was because i did at one point but i can't remember it i'll tell you right now my head it's a partly male partly female in appearance okay so that all right, gotcha. Having the character, kind of like it's a hermaphrodite. Uh, there was a no effects song about a dude in a dress and stuff. Probably multiple, actually, knowing Fat Mike. Yeah. So, anyways, Androgynous well, was a sort of a ballady type of song. It really wasn't the norm for the replacements at the time, and that was what sort of brought Paul into toying that line of. I got to write punk songs, but I want to write these ballady type songs as well. I think he was always fighting that in his own yeah. head. Like, I want to write a song like Androgynous, but I want to write a song like Fuck School too. But how do you blend the two? It, right. It's a hard It's a hard line to follow. I just think it, it definitely, that song in particular does show Paul's maturity and the fact that it is slower and it's just him, it's just the guitar And then uh, while we're on the topic of their maturity, the next song I wanted to talk about on there is called Gary's Got a Boner. So they had this ongoing joke that they never met anybody smart by the name of Gary. For some reason, you know, just because they were the replacements, they wrote 
that song, Gary's Got a Boner, which they stole the riff, directly stole the riff from Cat Scratch Fever to do so. Ted Nugent actually received a co-writing credit on the song, even though he didn't actually have anything to do with the song aside from them taking his riff. It's just the replacements being their replacements. Yep. And then they did play a show at CBGB's around this time as Gary and the Boners, because they were supposed to be going into another show a couple nights later in the same area to play for a couple labels, uh, like Warner and Sire. Yeah, Showcase. Yep. And there was a bunch of label heads there, and they completely bombed the show. Um, They went into a performance of 43 songs and snippets, most of which were covers of, like, Bachman-Turner Overdrive and uh, Willie Nelson and just, like, the most random things you could think of and just thrown into punk songs. And they would do these quick, fast covers. That night, Gene Simmons shows up at CBGB's and somebody had told Paul Gene Simmons showed up and they busted out into their cover of Black Diamond. Right. But they did it so bad that Gene Simmons was like, oh, fuck, I got to get out of here. Like, how'd they know I was here? And why are they ruining my song? (laughs) (laughs) So, like, he left and got the fuck out of there. Oh, that's so great. 16 Blue, another song on the album, is a a coming-of-age story about Tommy, really. And I really like the second verse. And it goes like, brag about things you don't understand. A girl and a woman, a boy and a man. Everything is sexually vague. Now you're wondering to yourself, you might be gay. <laughs> and it's it's silly, but I mean, everybody's been through that sort of thing, you yeah, know? Those weird teenage years. Right, kind of in between puberty and adulthood. You're figuring things out. It's, you know, it's all about Tommy because he was 16 at the time, you know? I mean, that's what makes it special, I think. So, on to Answering Machine, which is my personal favorite replacement song. It's a pretty simple song, but it's basically a love song to this girl that Paul met in Ann Arbor. They had a long-distance relationship, and he would often have to call her and talk to her through the answering machine. Paul, being the person he was, didn't really care for that, so he put the frustrations into his song and wrote that out. I, I, I don't know, I just like the whole concept of how do I say I miss you to an answering machine, how do you say you're okay or are you okay to an answering machine, and I thought it was funny that at the end of it he was screaming out the 313 area code, Yeah. And the weird fade out part that it does, but then he also threw a couple other area codes in there to like cover bases he was like in case any of my other girls in other states you know yeah you gotta the throw out some that other the numbers song is about them <laughs> ludicrous didn't have hoes in different area codes first paul westerberg did fucking a so yeah i think we kind of spent enough time on let it be but like we said it's a great album start to finish there's so much i mean we could do a whole episode just breaking down that album in general agreed just go listen to it that's a great starting point for the replacements to get into the band to hear what really their sound that they're known for was structured from i would say yeah i would agree definitely so then after that album they signed on to sire records which if you're familiar with sire records were home to bands like the ramones the dead boys i think new order was on there for a little bit talking heads 
Yep. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Alternative type bands. New, Echo and the Bunny Men yeah. is one. New Wave bands, which Sire Records actually coined the term New Wave to deter people from punk because punk had a stigma, the name of it at that time. So they were trying to sell these bands as new wave instead of punk so the masses would consume it. But because they didn't want any of that sex pistol. That's what people thought of as punk then is basically just hooligans. And then so their Sire Records release was titled Tim. And that was released in October 1985. I did read that Paul wrote most of this album about a week before it was recorded and a lot of the songs he wrote as acoustic songs, then brought them to the replacements and played them as electric. Uh, okay. Um, it was produced by Tommy Ramone. It reached 183 on the Billboard charts back then, and it is a, it's 136 on the Rolling Stones list. I said that Let It Be is my favorite album, but my favorite song might be on this record. This would be, yeah, this is the first replacements album that i actually heard okay what would have introduced me to the replacements and then i heard the punk stuff later down the road that's how i heard it basically yeah every time i find a band no matter what point i hear in their career i always go back to the beginning to hear were they better were they worse were they a totally different sounding band did they have a different singer yeah i like to hear where progress. where that yeah the progress of like okay you can hear these influences in the first album well you get to the fifth album and that influence might be gone and there's a whole grip yeah. of new ones i i I, usually, I love it usually by the fifth album bands are living a different lifestyle but for the replacements that wasn't the case because at their fifth album they were still Broke alcoholics? Broke alcoholics who were... They didn't even have a tour bus at this point still. As far as I know, they had that little van, and that was about it. Didn't that van have a name? Probably, but I don't remember. I don't remember it either. But I do remember the story about every time they would play Bad Brains, that they would mosh inside of the van, and a lot of times they almost tipped it over. And so That Jes- is fucking awesome. <laughs> so Jesperson always says, I can't listen to the Bad Brains now without thinking about that. Side note, we should totally try to flip a van listening to the Bad Brains someday. That would be fun. Or not fun, depending mm. on how it ended. So around the time of this album, Bob was pretty much spiraling out of control with being an alcoholic and he didn't really show up for recording most of the time and then when he did he had no ambition to actually try to play the songs he didn't want to learn them he wouldn't even learn the name of the songs actually if i remember correctly yeah he he was that one song he was definitely heading towards his rock bottom when he would show up i remember reading that he would lay down in front of his amp and just play on the floor. And that was most of what his guitar work that you hear on the album is, is just him. They had to do as many takes as they could while he was as sober as he could be before he got too drunk because then he couldn't play anymore. Once he passed that, which most of the times, by the time he even got there, he was already at that point. I'm sure everybody out there knows how... When you drink, you kind of have that arc. Well, they had to catch him at that perfect time before he passed out and couldn't do shit. So, songs on this album. You said your favorite song is on this album. My favorite song is on this album, and that song 
is Bastards of Young. That was a single. And I don't even know where to begin on this song, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean... Yeah, you could do a whole dissection of the lyrics in general. At around this time, you know, was it 1985? Yep, I believe 85. 85. Okay, you have MTV and Sire, want, they wanted the band to make music videos and... The replacements, of course, fuck music videos. <laughs> they want you to listen to the music. And, and, of course, at that time, you know, it was a whole new thing. So they basically had to make a video as a part of their contract. So they made a video for Bastards of Young. And all it is is a one-shot on a speaker the whole time. Black and white. And Fucking the, genius. The speaker's upside down, too. Yeah, it, it's genius, I think. Of course, they got in a bunch of shit for it back then. Yeah. And, and now probably it's, once again hurt their exactly of their career because they were they self sabotaged again. Yep. Did they ever make a music video, like an actual music video? Well, where it showed all their faces, no. Like where it, they Paul played. Paul said that it takes the danger out of rock and roll, if I remember correctly. That does sound right. Yeah. Something he would definitely say. There we are. I do like in Bastards of Young how. Uh, the line income tax reduction or income yeah. tax deduction one hell of a function is actually going back to when Bob was or when Paul was born. He was born December 31st and his mother tried to induce labor early so she could deduct him on her taxes. So that was kind of what the that line in the song meant. But they always had little meanings tied into their songs like they impress me with how little they could put into a song, but how much it ends up being. Yeah, the meaning behind everything. Yeah, but they wrote such simple songs. Like, a lot of them were two verses, really, and then a chorus, maybe. They just kind of made it work somehow. Yeah. The songs, like, they stay in your head every time you hear them. They were great, great songs, but they were such simple, little, easy songs that you would think one of them would have hit yeah. a single at some point. Because they're so catchy. Did. So catchy. Tim being, I guess this would be the pivotal point in their career, if you could say they even really had one. I would say... This, I would say this is the turning point. The turning point in the changing of their sound, where they started to sound alternative rock more than power trash or whatever they were called before, punk. Leaning, yeah, more yeah. towards the pop side of things i guess pop now anyway i don't and i do remember on this tour tommy was arrested for i can't really remember what he was arrested for to be honest with you i think it was in oklahoma maybe he was underage drinking or something or he told a cop to fuck off or something of the sort but he got arrested for a night they had to use some random guy out of the crowd for their bass player for that night that's and, fucking which rad. Which further fucked up their show. Um, then they went to Texas in that tour, the same tour, and then that was the show where Paul almost started the riot because he was calling all the people dumb hicks. Yeah. And playing shit that they didn't want to hear intentionally just to screw up their show. Oh, also around that time, um, a song off of Tim, they were supposed to play Saturday Night Live, which they did in 1986. I'm going to interrupt you really quick because I think this is relevant to the band name. Originally, the Pointer Sisters were supposed to play that night yep. at, for Saturday Night Live. Yep. And then they were they not canceled. able to make it. So 
the replacements were the replacement for the Pointer Sisters, which further goes on to put their legacy in stone that, you know, that's what that's they were. That's what they were, <laughs> right, exactly. Anyways, go ahead with the Saturday Night Live show. Well, needless to say, they were very strict back then. Like, And, of course, it's live. You can't swear. You're supposed to play what you tell them you're going to play. Was this before or after Fear was banned on Saturday Night Live? This was 85, and Fear was like 79 yeah. or 81, wasn't it? Yeah. But they were banned for different reasons. D- exactly. So. Well, they, if you you watch it, you look it up on YouTube, they're drunk, acting a fool. Paul's yelling at Bob. Bob's yelling at Paul, and it sounds awful. I think at one point... Chris, Tommy, and Paul went in the bathroom and switched clothes. Yeah, when they came out to play the next song, which yep, they never Bob actually showed. They didn't air, I don't think. Oh, because they had cut them off already because yeah. of them saying fuck. Yeah. But you can still watch it. I mean, now, you know, of course it's available to watch. Right. And I do remember reading that Bob finished a song with a backwards somersault and his pants ripped and his whole ass showed on national TV. But I think that the I think that the guy that ran Saturday Night Live didn't see that it happened or something, and Bob didn't know because he was too fucked up to know. Think about that: your pants rip, and you don't even realize it. <laughs> Especially but, on national TV, yeah. Because you'd be thinking like, "Fuck, there's eight million people." I think they said it was watching that show that night. I'd get you know I get nervous if fifty people watching me around right. eight million I'd be up there sweating bullets and that's and making sure that's everything when was, everybody watched Saturday Night Live like yeah. that had the best lineup people were tuning into that they weren't just catching shorts right. of it on their phone or something yeah you had to like be in the house to watch it you know so yeah they got kicked off of Saturday Night Live and then due to that so Sire Records was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Saturday Night Live wanted to ban all further Warner Brothers artists from ever performing on Saturday Night Live due to the replacements performance and their antics and what they did on that stage and just the way they acted because I do recall them destroying the hotel room and drinking there when they weren't supposed to drink there and all types of shit like that. And I think this was around the time that they finally got a tour bus shortly after that. Okay. And in the replacements fashion, the tour bus lasted about a week before they smashed all the windows out of it and they threw paint all over the inside. They took the toilet out while it was moving or while the tour bus was driving, they took the toilet out and threw it on the highway. Um, I remember reading a story (laughs) about Bob taking a shit in the back of it because there was no toilet anymore Uh and they were just like pissing on a pile of lumber or something and their record label i think ended up having to pay for all the damages to the hotel from saturday night live that they trashed and for their tour bus as well which you know got shit rolls downhill so that came out of their end and that's you know that's why they're always broke and i know they still weren't making money at this point in their career you know five albums in most bands have some sort of return on their albums and during this time when tim was being recorded and pressed up twin tone was finally releasing sorry ma i forgot to take out the trash and either stink or hoot nanny on cassette for the first time wow which was so much later yeah the career 
So anyways, uh, I think we talked about Tim enough. I don't want to take up too much extra time with it. Following Tim was their second album on Sire Records titled Please to Meet Me. That came out in 1987, was produced by Jim Dickinson, and it has 11 tracks. Yeah, and it was the first band after, or first album after Bob was removed from the band. Right, Bob is not in Bob, the band. Bob, due to his alcoholism and just his lack of showing interest in the band anymore and him not being reliable enough to show up for practice. Like, with all the stories that we've told up until this point, think of how bad off you have to be for these four reckless dudes for three of them including your younger brother to be like dude you're fucking up and you got to get your shit together you know that would suck for being as your little brother to have to kick your older brother out of the band that he created right and there was that power struggle between paul and him where paul wanted to take it into that more songwriting the way that it went where bob wanted to keep that rock and roll and the sire records label had wanted them to make a single right there's um a lot of great tracks on this album, though. Oh, yeah. It I mean, the first one. See, to me, like, I'm really surprised that Alex Chilton never made it. As a single, a single, I know. that is such a catchy song. And funny enough, it's written about a song. Right. You know, Alex Chilton was a guitar player from a band called Box Tops. And the story goes, Paul met Alex at CBGB's. Uh, He was starstruck and didn't really know what to say to him, so he walks up to him and says, Hey man, I really love your song. What's that song? And lyrics in Alex Chilton go, I'm in love. What's that song? You know, that's kind of the ballad of the, or the melody to the chorus. And so it's funny that it's written about another song, but it's such a catchy song that, I don't know, it's one of those feel-good songs that you just put on, crank up, and you're like, doing your dishes and well shit. it has that it has that feel to it where if you don't pay attention to the lyrics at all it's like real happy jolly it could have been on the radio you know yep another thing about um chilton is he was uh also in big star which is another cult band that only put out a couple of albums i liked uh i know never mind on please to meet me was a song about bob um, I do like that song quite a bit. Shootin' Dirty Pool, uh, along with Alex Chilton, would probably be my two favorite songs off the album. Funny enough, Alex Chilton actually played guitar on the last track, Can't Hardly Wait, but he did not play guitar on Alex Chilton. Yeah, that's pretty funny. This point in their career is where, I mean, all the people that are on their side, Jesperson, who at this point is almost removed as their manager because... He was becoming an alcoholic and junkie as well. But everybody that's in their corner has been pushing this band for so many years. At this point, it's seven years into their career. You know, they got six albums through, and they still haven't had even... uh, I don't even think they had a top 40 hit at this point. No. Did they? So everybody in their corner wants them to win, to succeed, but they just, once again, completely just screw it up for themselves over and over and over again they were offered multiple contracts at this point for other things but they were either willing to sign to the contract for whatever reason paul was afraid of selling out and there was just this underlying fear of failing on paul's end i remember the book reciting quite a bit 
which I mean, if you're going to do something and be scared of failing at it, then that fear is going to get in your way of doing something. Like if, you know, we, right. if we were worried to do every podcast episode, which, you know, we're learning and shit, hopefully people are going to stay tuned for this whole hour long episode yes. that we're babbling on about the replacements. You know, we're doing it. Whether or not it goes anywhere, cool. If it it's does, fun. if it doesn't, but it's fun. So they let their ego get in the way, their fear get in the way, and it just seemed like they were gonna, you know, overcome that just that slump, I guess, that they were in. But they just never that slump came. that they were born into. It was like they were going uphill on a never-ending hill that didn't have a slope off, that didn't have a point. It was just up and up and up and up and up and up. A lot of it was them. They did it to themselves and just the circumstances that happened around them and, you know, the way they chose to handle shit. But following, please to meet me, Don't Tell a Soul. Don't Tell a Soul. What year was that released? I believe that was released in 87. 87. Let me double check. Oh, Please to Meet Me was 87. Don't Tell a Soul was 89. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because they toured on Tim for about 200 shows. Right. Most of which they screwed up. Yep. I, I, re- I recall reading that they would get, let's say, one decent show, 10 bad shows. <laughs> yeah. One awesome show, 20 horrible yeah. shows. Like, it was very, very unpredictable. And again, who? why are you going to go pay to see a band like that when you don't know what you're going to get? I mean, you can only fuck up so many times, right? Yeah, and, you don't know if they're going to come out with covering jerry lee lewis songs or if they're gonna play the songs that you want to hear because like what if you're a diehard replacements fan and you want to hear alex chilton you want to hear i will dare you want to hear black diamond you want to hear yeah uh, it's good luck school you want to hear androgynous etc and then you go there and they're like just yell one two three four and break out into 48 different songs yeah mangled together (laughs) and you and just yeah, never know what you're going to get. Good. Which could be cool back then, because you probably weren't paying much for the tickets. But imagine now if you... Paid, yeah, you'd like, be pissed. You got like a $50 seat, and you go to the show, and it's just awful, and they completely screw it up for themselves. But anyways, Don't Tell a Soul followed Tim, and that was kind of... That, to me, that was the end of the replacements, I guess. Um, much, I, yeah. They still have, I mean, it's a replacements album, that's the name of it, but it's definitely a Paul Westerberg-like, solo I'm going to try to solo thing, but I'm not going to put my name on it, I'll just write the replacements. It definitely had more of a polished sound, and not only was that because of it being mostly Westerberg songs, just as the acoustic versions almost, which they yeah. kind of made almost poppy, some of them. I'd like to say that everything up until that point is timeless i mean you can't tell that it was made when it was made but don't tell a soul you can tell that that's some shit from like the late 80s 80s. early 90s it sounds like it it's mixed like it produced like it yeah it has that synth pop sound to Uh it so and it just doesn't feel like the same band it doesn't feel like the same and the writing isn't even really that great Feel free to skip that record is what we're telling you. <laughs> and part of what made The Replacements great was their sense of humor that was tied into right. that stuff. And it just didn't seem like they still had that sense of humor on that album. They were trying to make it polished and make it clean and make it perfect and make it a radio hit. Because that's what Sire wanted them to do. And that's what they felt they had to do at that point in their career. But it just didn't work No, Like, they... Once quoted in the book, we are not made of 
the things that make up popular music. And I think that fit perfectly with them because they were just four working class dudes that were from the Midwest that didn't really have this preconceived notion that they were going to be like headlining festivals or right. like the world's next biggest band like it's like they started it to pass the time yeah four drinking dudes that like to play music together and happen to have a string of great songs that people just missed which is unfortunate because they're a great band and did a lot of there's so many bands that were influenced by their sound and what they did you know you can go into the 90s and pick out all these bands that have that sound of the replacements, either early stuff yep. or their later stuff in their career. And and like you said, it's just timeless stuff. And it's, it's kind of like the greatest band you've never heard. I, I mean, I'd, I'd give it that. And they're, I mean, I think I said this earlier, but they're one of those bands you can throw on in any mood and just run with it. Yep. Like, there's a little bit of everything tied into there. Yeah, uh, going back to Tim and Let It Be, those records, they'll take you on an emotional roller coaster if you let them. I always like to read through lyrics when I'm listening to something, either not necessarily the first time, but as I get more familiar with it, right. I'll read through the lyrics to it with it. Because sometimes you don't notice that, like what you're missing. There's a lot of stuff tied into their songs that you may not know is there. Oh, yeah, I mean... Um, <laughs> Bastards of Young, the chorus, wait on the sons of no one. Bastards of Young is how it goes. However, a lot of people, most everybody thinks it says we are the sons of no one, but it's actually wait on the sons of no one. Bastards of Young. And it's heavily misquoted. <laughs> I've been guilty of that one. I yeah. thought it said. I, I originally thought it, it said that like, too. It sounds just like it. Yep. But I, I bring that up because, like you said, it is a good idea at some point to grab that lyric yeah. and listen to it with it, get a better understanding of where they're coming from. So following Don't Tell a Soul, neither Jeremy or I are very familiar with this album just because the last one just wasn't, I don't know, it, it didn't give the feel of the band. Is it All Shook Down, All Shook Up? All Shook Down. Okay, so this was pretty much, this was the end of the replacements career. It was pretty much all solo Westerberg songs and wasn't put together very well. It almost seemed like it was somebody's idea of one last attempt at making this band go somewhere. It basically just putting the replacements name on the album and yep. seeing what happens. And like all the albums that came before it, it just didn't do that well. And then I don't know, Paul branched off into his solo career. Uh, he released six solo albums, which I've only listened to two of. He's got some good songs here and there. Uh, a lot of songs are, I don't know, he was a very unique songwriter. He had a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff. And I think at different at that point in his career, he just probably was drinking a lot. And I know he was going through a divorce. And there was probably a lot of that that contributed to his songwriting. Did write a few songs for the single soundtrack, which I guess would have been during the replacements time. Which is a great soundtrack. Right. But they're not replacement songs, obviously. It's another oh. In two thousand six, the animated movie Open Season did the song for that the songs for that, eight of them. Oh, I thought it was six. Yeah, eight of them. Eight original songs. 
Tommy still is out playing. Paul probably made more money off of that short little soundtrack yep. than he did throughout his entire career. Probably. Uh, that was, wasn't that a Disney movie? Yeah. So oh, they, not sure on that. Okay. I'm going to guess Open Season did more than 6,000 copies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I, I would hope. So what's Tommy doing now? I forget the name of Tommy's band. Hang on. Tommy played with Guns N' Roses from 98 until 2016, played bass. Of course, that was during, like, the Chinese democracy era of guns, so I I missed that. In 2004, he released his solo album, Village Gorilla Head, and joined Soul Asylum for a tour in 2006, and he still plays music to this day. He's in a band called Bash and Pop. Is Bob still in a band, or is he... Bob passed away. Oh, that's right. In 1995, which I was getting to. February 18th, 1995, Bob died of a drug overdose. And Bob did try to commit suicide quite a oh, few times. Oh, pardon me. He did not die of a drug overdose, but rather frequent drug use basically destroyed his body, and his organs just started shutting down. Um, they found his body with an unused insulin syringe next to it. Not a very glamorous death, man. Uh, rock and roll never is. So Chris went on to paint. Yeah, 1990. He's been painting ever since. Yeah. Successfully. And Paul, I mean, you know, as far as I know, he still does solo stuff. I know they did a some reunion sometime in like 2012 or 13, somewhere around there. They played a reunion show. Yeah. I remember correctly. With the surviving members. Yep. I want to say that was in... 2012 to 2015. October 3rd, it was announced that the replacements had reformed with Westerberg and Tommy Stinson. So they went out like that and cashed in a little. Well, I mean, I think we dropped enough info on the replacements for one sitting and more than people can probably bear anyways. Uh, But yeah, the replacements, if you're not familiar with them, check them out. They're an amazing band. And if you're into catchy songs in general i mean you don't even have to be into a certain genre of music to like this if if you're just into good songs good songwritings and things that make you feel good then the replacements are a great band to check out i would start with let it be and that would be the best starting point continue with tim and then take it from there if you want to go back and check out the early stuff go for it i mean if you do like don't tell a soul that's great you know that's fine i jeremy and i personally didn't like the album but that's just because we were accustomed to the sound that they already had I right but anyways thanks for tuning in and we will have more episodes coming very soon like we said earlier apologies if this is a jumbled mess of crap but we're we doing had, our best we had so much information to give out i mean i even i left out a lot of shit that i could have kept saying uh, there's so many funny stories and stuff that like when bob went and played naked on stage and <laughs> with ben gay on his balls, yeah that's like, so disgusting but it's hilarious and would be incredibly painful yes but anyways thank you for joining in on noise avocation podcast uh, we appreciate everybody who takes the time to sit here and listen to us and we will see you next week thank you